0: You're listening to Updates for Healthcare Providers, Experiences from the Front Lines. This episode was recorded live from the presenters' homes and without access to professional recording equipment. We hope you enjoy. So I'm
1: Holly Workman. I am a physician at I'm Halftime, a physician at WorkSafeBC, and I also do addiction medicine in Prince George. But I've only actually been here for five years, and prior to that I did um, family and emerge in margin, very small towns for about 20 years. But I'm accompanied by a stellar group of physicians, and I'm going to let them all introduce
2: themselves. You're muted. Hi there. I'm Shelly Perlman, and I'm an internist at WorkSafeBC. I'm also a consultant for occupational health and safety at PHSA.
3: Hi, I'm Brenda Hardy. I'm a family doctor. I live in North Vancouver. My clinic is in Vancouver. And um, I also do some consulting work for WorkSafe uh, and the Physician Education Initiative Committee, which I show up there essentially as your regular family doc bringing uh, that point of view. And like Holly, I worked 19 years in rural communities doing emergent family practice until the last uh, seven years or so I've been um an urban family doctor.
4: Have we lost Mayank? Hello, good afternoon, or oh, good evening Roger. My name is Mayank Singo. I am a physician epidemiologist at the BC Centre for Disease Control. I have been working on the public health management guidelines uh, along with our public health colleagues and our clinical colleagues uh, to, to manage uh, the COVID pandemic from a public health perspective.
5: Hi, I'm Tom Cazell, and I have an echo. I'm the Medical Director for Environmental Health at the BC Center for Disease Control, uh, and I was once a rural physician, once an urban uh, family practitioner. Uh, I'm an occupational physician, and I've been here for the last 12 years, and uh, most recently, during times of COVID, I've been involved in looking at how to get people safely back to work.
1: Great. Thank you very much. And of course, everyone's met through. So the learning objectives for tonight, um, we're going to use key occupational medical concepts to try to give you an approach for patient and workplace questions about return to work. And I think if there's nothing else we've learned about COVID-19, it's that things change every week, every month, every day, every minute, practically. So that's why it'll be an approach that hopefully will be effective now, but it'll also be something we can use should there be a second wave, and hopefully it was something we could have used um, or may have been using already a few months ago when things were a bit busier. Um, I'd also like to review sort of the, we're going to clarify the role of physicians, patients, and workplaces in responding to patient issues around safe return to work. Um, And finally, we'll be integrating expert advice from this fabulous panel, um, and responding to your questions that patients have for you about um, returning to work in a safe manner. So what, what I'm hearing, and I think what we're all hearing from, from patients in our offices, um, is that people are concerned about return to work. They're not, they're not, um, there's a very variety of concerns they may have. Some people are just anxious about returning to work, period. Some are worried that their specific workplace is not a safe place to be because of various conditions. Some are in that group that we all hear about, a male over 50 with diabetes and hypertension. That doesn't sound like a good combination when faced with COVID-19. Um, still others have an elderly family member or somebody at high risk living in their home or close to them. And even, and even again, we may see some patients who are actually are very keen to return to work and are coming to you saying, I'd like to return to work and I want you to clear me to work for work. And they may have sort of immune compromised status that worries you. I think firstly, it's important for all of these that we need to remember that many of these patients are you and I, that we are also, uh, we're we physicians, we are nurse practitioners, we're primary care providers in one way or another, um, but we're also patients. And so many of these issues are going to touch us both professionally um, and personally. And, and I also think it's important to remember that the vast majority of patients um, right now and workers are actually returning to work and they're not coming to your office. And and I think this is good to remember because it's the same same with many work-safe or work-related injuries. Um, The majority of people go back to work and see very little of their family doc or their physicians and don't need a lot of support. So some of them may be self-identifying with you and may be coming forward because they have significant underlying health issues or workplaces that are particularly worrisome with regards to COVID-19. But still others are going to be... um, patients where there's other things going on, and there could be a whole host of things going on, some related to COVID, mental health issues, addiction, some that may not be related to COVID at all with regards to employer-employee relations, that kind of stuff. And although it's not your role necessarily, I think it can be helpful to kind of make sure and review whether or not some of those issues may also be happening and playing a role in a patient's worries and concerns about their return to work. So whose role is it anyway? I mean, I think we often get asked by a patient or by a workplace, can I go to work or can this person go to work? Which is a completely unfair question, not a medical question. We're not physicians. As physicians, that's not what we do. We don't say whether or not you can work or you can't work. Um, We we provide expertise and and, and help people figure out what they're able to do and not do. And I think we're all very used to our role. Um, as physicians to diagnose and treat medical conditions and support patients with sort of common human concerns. And I think with work safe and with our patients in general, most of us play some role in sort of providing expertise to their patients and to their workplace and hopefully letting them figure out what accommodations the patient might need to be able to work. So if a patient has a left, injury, a left wrist injury, I think we all the time say, sure, they can return to work, but they can't use their left wrist. They can do things if you can if they can work using just the right hand or the one arm, um, and I think we can try to think about it in that similar way with um, with COVID nineteen and with workplace, where people we can tell uh, workplaces or patients that they may be at higher risk of a worse outcome should they contract COVID nineteen, and so therefore if there are any way if there's any way they can have a reduced chance of interacting with people who may be infectious or may have been exposed. Or if a, uh, exposed to a few number of people at work, that those sorts of accommodations would be helpful. Um, and finally, I think as a physician, um, it is partly our role to try to encourage our patients to discuss their concerns with their employer and get healthy communication in there. Because very often, when patients are having a hard time returning to work, um, their communication lines with their employer are not good. And that's, that's common with injuries, and I think it's probably not that uncommon with COVID-19 as well. And often just having that communication, hearing what's happening, hearing what, the, what accommodations may have, been, may have been made, may be enough to reassure your patients that they, they can actually return or that they can at least, will have an employer who will listen to them and hear their concerns and help work with them to find a way to return. So the physician role. So the workplace. The workplace is responsible to provide a safe workplace. And I put safe in quotation marks because, you know, a, a firefighter's say definition of a safe workplace is very different than my definition of a safe workplace. Um, and many of your workplaces as physicians, I mean, folks who work in ICUs um, or in infectious disease places, those wards, those are, those are relatively unsafe places in many people's opinions. So the range of a safe workplace varies uh, from, from, you know, extreme to being able to work at home. Um, But within the confines of COVID-19, workplaces are responsible to make it as safe as possible under the circumstances. Um, And the workplace is responsible for gathering the information about what accommodations they need to make um, at their workplace and to implement those accommodations um, to protect their employees and their clients or anything along those lines uh, from COVID-19. And then finally, as I'm sure most of you know, because many of you will have done it yourself, all workplaces are required to um, develop a safety plan and communicate that safety plan to their employees. And that is really a huge piece, and that's why I separate it, because communication to the employees is is huge um, for making them feel like they've got a role and that they understand what's happening and that they can give feedback. And then finally, and what I think is often not even brought up, is what is the patient's role here? Um, The patient does have a responsibility to... Inform their workplace if they have concerns that their workplace isn't safe to allow their their work their employer to remedy that. But I think most importantly, the patient really has um, the the patient's responsibility is to make their final decision to collect information that you can give them as a physician about the risk um, of COVID-19 and of exposure and of infection, um, and also to take that information the information from their employer what the accommodations are that the employer is making, and to look at all of that and decide what their risk tolerance is. And that really is the patient's decision. That's not our role as physicians to make. We're there to try to review all of give us as much information as they can as we can to them so that they can make their own decisions. So in occupational medicine we always talk about risks or restrictions. Um, and by risk and restrictions, we mean, is, is there an activity that a patient should not do because it's going to harm themselves or others? Uh, this is something that tends to be physician prescribed. And it's something where if the patient begs you to do it, you're going to say, no, you can't. You know, straightforward stuff is, are things like, can you weight bear on your unstable ankle fracture? Well, no, that's a no-brainer. Of course not. It's going to ruin the alignment of the fracture and, and hinder healing. Um, and I think one of the most important things to think about when you're looking at risk and restrictions, is that they're not? They don't just apply to work. We often get asked them only with respect to work. But if I'm going to prescribe a restriction for a patient, it applies to home as well. They can't walk on their broken bone at, at work, but they can't walk on it at home either. Um, people can't should not be making critical decisions while under the influence of sedating medication at work. But neither should be they be making critical decisions um, at home either um, when they're on those the medications um, and. I think in the time of COVID-19, I think there are not very many times, at least right now, I think with the present numbers of COVID-19, very few of us would be restricting many patients from, say, doing anything at all. You know, a restriction might be you need to stay home, and I don't think you should be going anywhere out in public. Um, But a few months ago, or if you were in one of the cities in Italy that was hard hit or in New York, I think most of us would have been quite comfortable saying, you're a chemotherapy patient who's neutropenic, you need to stay home and you shouldn't be going anywhere Or you're a transplant patient on immunocom- and, and you're immunocompromised. Um, so the number one thing is, are there restrictions? Is, there, is this a patient where you really need them to stay home and not do anything? And apart from that, then if there aren't any of those, then we're starting to just look at how much risk is too much And again, it just falls back to you need to discuss it with your patient. So um, the patient is ultimately the one who's going to be taking on whatever risk there may or may not be. Um, And I think it's important as well that when you talk to the patient about the risks of COVID-19 and working and not working, you also be sure to review the actual risks of not working and worklessness, because the numbers are very clear that long-term worklessness and not working increases, the chance of mental health disorders, of addictions, and of physical health disorders quite quite dramatically, actually, particularly if it's prolonged. And the other thing to speak with your patient about is going to be finding out what they're actually doing already at home. You know, are they are they going to the grocery store? Are they getting a massage? Are they getting their hair cut? Are they going to the mall? Um, are they having barbecues with 30 family members? Um, you know, all that sort of thing, where because some of the times you may find that it makes it a lot easier because the things that they're doing on their own may be a higher risk than their office job that allows social distancing and has staggered breaks and has done all kinds of accommodations to make sure that people are separated. So if you go through all of that with your patients, and I think often as their family physician, you're probably going to be one of the best person people to, for that patient to talk to about it. They trust you. You know them well you can go through all of the information that you can put together about, about with their questions for COVID-19, um, and they may feel comfortable and you may feel comfortable with whatever decision they, that they make. But if you're not comfortable or if the patient needs more info or you feel you do, um, if it's a complicated patient, my, hope, my guess is that there'll already be a, a specialist involved. You know, transplant patients, chemotherapy patients are going to have specialist positions, and either you or your patient can seek specialist input. Um, but if you don't have a specialist involved or if you have a specialist who doesn't really know, um, the next line would be that we do actually have um, a medical advisor info line at WorkSafe BC. And the number's there, and I think, I think you'll have access to these. So it's 1-855-476-3049. And uh, you leave a voicemail there. It's open sort of banker's hours, 830 to 4 or something along those lines. And a, a medical advisor with expertise in occupational medicine will call you back and can help you work through some of the questions you may have or your patient may have about their risk and the return to work. Um, and then finally, the workplace safety issue. If your patient remains concerned about the workplace, um, again, the first line is to encourage your patient to speak to their employer and see if the employer can resolve it. Next line is actually supposed to be that your uh, the patient can also go to their workplace to the union or to the occupational health and safety. And have them review it and review it with the employer. But if the patient is still unhappy, um, they certainly do have the right to refuse unsafe work, and they need to contact WorkSafe BC 1-888-621-SAFE, and a prevention officer will actually go and inspect and make sure and see if the, um, they are doing things adequately and have have um, implemented adequate accommodations for COVID-19 to make the workplace safer. Oh, Oh, right, sorry. I didn't mean to make this all come in one piece at a time. So at the end, the way I look at it, we're sort of looking at three realms for our patients, three realms of things to to look at for each patient when they're coming in and they're talking to you about COVID-19 and the risk. So the first one is my Lego guy, and that's my patient. Um, And so we need obviously, the patient needs to look at their own health. So their age is going to be a big one. And then any concomitant medical problems they may have, any underlying medical conditions that may increase their risk for a, a bad outcome with COVID-19. Um, I also think every patient's gonna have to look at their own household or their own close contact, if not household, and see is there anybody in that close circle who's going to be at a significantly increased risk of a bad outcome from COVID-19, because that may play a role in how com- comfortable they are being out in public or interacting with more people. Um, A patient's risk tolerance is always going to be important, and it's so variable. You know, our jobs have well every possible degree of risk across the gamut. Um, And often, as I said, as a family doc, I think you're going to understand and know your patient better than most. Um, And you may be able to support them in figuring out what they're going to be comfortable with. And then finally, there's the work attachment, um, which is going to be, again, so variable. There's so many people... There are many people who love their work and can't stand to be away from work and can't wait to get back to work. And clearly those people are going to be much more willing to tolerate some risk in their return to work. And those may be the people that you have to settle down a little bit if the, if the numbers were higher um, in, in perhaps reminding them of risk and safety. Um, but trying to look at, I think if you look at all those realms for that individual, you'll have covered at least most of the patient tractors. Um, with the next one, my, my crane here is the workplace or the place of work, and by that, by workplace, I mean, what's the sort of nature of the work this person's doing? Are they in a meatpacking plant, which when we were chatting with, when I was chatting with these experts a few days ago, kept coming up, it's a oh, meatpacking plant. Um, you know, there's obviously been some places that have had worse outbreaks and where it's much more difficult to socially distance. Um, and, and yet there are others where it may be a workplace where they can work from home, which clearly doesn't pose much risk when it comes to COVID-19. Um, what accommodations has the workplace been able to do? Um, and then again, what kind of communication is there? And particularly, is there open communication both to and from the employees so that they can get that kind of feedback in real time and feel like their concerns are being listened to and, and um, addressed? And then finally, there's the wild card at the end, which is the COVID-19 um, and this is a tough one because I think at the moment, everyone, we're all feeling quite relaxed in that our numbers are low. We can all be fairly certain that community prevalence in our, each of our given communities is low. Um, but I think moving forward, if there is a second wave, knowing community prevalence, and I think it's variable, some physicians are, do know what their community prevalence is, but um, we don't always. And I think knowing some of that can be very helpful when we're advising our patients. We certainly feel much better if we know it's low and would, would be exercising more caution if we thought it was higher and then very lastly is going to be the public health um, orders or guidance documents and that some there's some jobs and some places of work and kinds of work may end up having things like guidelines where you can 't work at more than one facility or those sorts of things and obviously you 're going to need to take those into account and make sure the patient's aware of any of those if they don't have them more than anything and, and especially after speaking with these um, these specialists that are on the call with me, as I sit here avoiding the sun, sorry. Um, I think the biggest thing is that nobody really knows. This is the foremost experts on COVID 19 now have six entire months of uh, experience with COVID 19, which, of course, in the medical world is a drop in the bucket. Um, and so we're all trying to use as much information as we have and make the best decisions we have, but nobody I've spoken to yet is really certain of anything. And I think just making sure that you have these discussions and review as much as possible with your patients, you'll be setting them up to make the best decision possible under the circumstances. And with that, I will turn everything back over to Bruce.
6: Thank you very much, Holly. Um, appreciate that very comprehensive uh, overview of uh, returning to work. And I'm looking at the questions and uh, seeing that there's some... Uh, quite a degree of granularity to them, and uh, so I hope our panelists are ready to answer as best they can and I think Holly ending on that um, six months of expertise is uh, mm-hmm. a great segue into this next part to recognize that uh, the panel that we have has only that limited experience as well, and um, they are speaking from their own experience as well as their expertise. So thank you for that. The question, uh, the first question that's been brought to the top of the list is, um, what if I determine that my patient is fit to return to work, but reluctant to do so? How would I approach that situation?
1: You me, Brenda, I think.
3: Yeah, sure. I'll I'll try to answer that one. But I I liked your approach, Holly. Actually, that uh, I think it comes back to that last um, grid sort of that you had with the elements. I think you really need to figure out where the reluctance comes from. And I think as family doctors, we are very well situated to try to um, have those conversations. And and it's often not simple. There are often multiple factors. So typically, trying to sort out is it. Um, something specific to the workplace itself? Is it something in particular to their own health or their family's health? And then of course, sometimes our patients aren't entirely clear as we often aren't on exactly what the health orders are or what we should or shouldn't be doing. Um, And it does feel like there's some mixed messages at times. So I think we do need to drill down and figure out where the reluctance comes from before we can help to facilitate helping um, people get back to our My experience has been there's a lot of fear and sometimes talking about those fears and figuring out where they come from, sometimes information is helpful, but sometimes there's the usual strategies that we help patients with in terms of dealing with anxiety in general. And it may be that information, more information is not the answer. And it may actually be dealing with those symptoms of anxiety um, that uh, we might be using some other, other toolbox, other techniques try to help with i i I wonder if it's a question about work refusal though like which is a little bit different and again maybe holly you kind of touched on that if i'm wondering if some docs are feeling that they've had this conversation and the patient's just i'm not going to work It's, it's not okay we're in a pandemic we should all be staying home um and i'm just wondering if there is any other advice or support around people who are um compelled to not go to work, uh, feeling that that is the advice that they're being given uh, in the community.
6: I think your comment, Brenda, about um, the question was about reluctance and taking a good history, addressing issues, and um, educating is is probably key to all that, as you said there. So thank you for that. Um, The second question is, what is a good resource for determining individual risk one of the occupational um, specialists maybe answer that one shall we um,
2: um, you know I look I like to look at the medical guidelines so I will look at the BCCDC guidelines but I will also do literature searches to see what the most up-to-date information is. Um, I like uh, a lot of the literature coming out of New England Journal and getting updates on a regular basis from them. Um, I find I'm continually reviewing the literature to try and keep up with uh, what are the risky uh, medical conditions that we need to consider and how severe they have to be to consider
6: Anybody else have any other good resources besides CDC and New England Journal of Medicine to determine risk for a patient? I certainly, Brenda's shaking her head, no. I, I was looking at the New, Journal England, uh, New, <laughs> New, uh, New England Journal of Medicine and looking at immunocompromised. Uh, in COVID-19. And certainly there's good information there about that. So um, that type of resource uh, would be very useful. Thank you. If anyone has any good resources that they know that they've used, uh, putting it in chat would be great. And I'll have our staff uh, take a look in the chat to see if that resource is noted and we'll make sure that we mentioned it. Yes, Tom.
5: There, uh, One can look uh, for the specific condition of the patient uh, in order to uh, have an appreciation of risk from that point of view. Also, community prevalence is really important. Uh, and what are the known risk factors within that community, uh, which may or may not be relevant to the individual patient. If, if the person is living in an area of BC where there's virtually no COVID, no matter what they do, their own level of risk is very, very low, no matter where they're working. If, on the other hand, they, as you said, are working, uh, if, they, if they're if they considering going back to a meat plant packing plant, which has had an outbreak before, and as much as one tries, is liable to have another once introduced, then it's a very different situation. But there are sort of activities uh, that have been uh, scaled in terms of the risk associated with them, uh, any activity that brings you very close to other people uh, where they may be producing respiratory secretions very near to you, so things like singing in a choir, uh, being next to uh, someone who has to shout uh, in order to get instructions across, uh, those sorts of activities are much higher risk than sitting at home in your desk. So uh, gradations have been made and they're available. A very good source of information oddly is the New York Times, which has a a whole list of risk rankings, just like that, that look at the riskiness of various activities. And they can be applied to the workplace just as they can be applied to the home place.
6: Thank you, Tom. Um, There's another resource that I'm sure Many of us have looked at before but wouldn't consider it necessarily to be a medical resource, but you're right. I've seen some excellent yeah. uh, articles in there because of all the experience they've had. Uh, what about, this is interesting um, because this comes back to uh, ourselves as health practitioners, but what about healthcare workers who are seeing more patients at work, so in-person visits? Is it safe for us to be concurrently expanding our own social circles, our own bubble. What do you guys think of that? Brenda?
3: I want to know what Mayank thinks (laughs) as an (laughs) epidemiologist. Um, Because, I mean, my my reaction is that I tend to be a little more careful, a little more cautious, um, because I feel very responsible. And um, so that's been my approach. Also, people in my social circle, to be honest with you, don't really want to be with me because they know I'm a doctor and they think I might be putting them at risk. So they're a little bit cautious about expanding their bubble to include healthcare workers. Um, but I would really like some some advice, actually, from Mayanka, as an epidemiologist, perhaps, or Tom, uh, what your thoughts are should we be taking a different approach than anyone else or, or just considering ourselves the same?
4: Yeah, thanks, Brenda, for the, for the good question. It's an excellent question. Um, I think the health authorities have taken a considerable number of steps to reduce the incidence of, of COVID within and acquisition of COVID within healthcare facilities through various, various mechanisms, including PPE, uh, various engineering controls and administrative controls. So there, there's a lot going on, and we really are trying to make sure that our healthcare workers, which are which are a very important uh, part of the pandemic response, are safe to themselves, to their families, and to their communities. With that being said, you know we're not we're not restricting any activities of healthcare workers any more so than than the general population. We know that most healthcare workers uh, will take the steps necessary to reduce any transmission of infection while at work and outside of work. So. In a in a short in a short answer, there's there's no particular restrictions. But as Brenda said, you know many people have taken on additional um, measures out of their uh, out of their own personal preference, and that is that is perfectly valid and should be supported.
6: Thanks. Next question is: um, What are your recommendations, and how would you approach a patient with a high risk family member or more than one? High
2: risk family members at home. You, I can answer that. Okay, sorry. Um, so I, I would look at it from an individualized and holistic uh, assessment, risk assessment, and I mean, you need to consider the fact that the community spread is low, um, that most workplaces have active screening or passive screening in place. Um, people are not supposed to be coming to work ill, and there should be other measures in place, like a COVID-19 safety plan. But you need to consider um, the worker's concerns, the nature of their work, and how risky their work is—the task, the environment—and then you need to understand the whole the household member's risk. And so, I do think that you know the worker, nature of work, and workers' household risk of whoever they're living at home, these are all three variable, very important factors to consider when you're thinking about someone's risk and bringing home COVID-19. But at this point, because the community spreads low and we've got all these measures in place, I still think that overall the risk is low.
6: And um, again, um, this is... uh, relating to return to work, um, and it's very job specific. Um, This question uh, says, so many patients who are teachers are asking for notes off work. And so we're focusing in one profession and actually it's interesting that question came up because uh, that's something that uh, we had identified uh, last time as possible profession that where people might be concerned because of the contact with children. How do you manage that? What are the suggestions?
4: Mayank? Yeah, so I was probably going to add, I think one of the key um, uh, public health characteristics of COVID has been that we've seen very few infections in, in, the, in children. So generally we're speaking under the age of 10, but even up to the age of 18, 19, we've seen very few infections uh, in fact, if we look at all the, if we look at the number of kids who tested positive, kids being under under the age of eighteen, uh, uh, thousands have been tested across the province, and less than one percent, actually around point one percent, have actually tested positive. So th- there is something about about this population where they they seem to be inherently uh, kind of resistant to this to this virus. It's it's not quite we're not quite so sure why that is. So as a population, the uh, the the pediatric population seems to be at much less risk of of having this disease, and also transmitting this disease to others. So it's a, it's a low risk environment to begin with. And I think the second piece is that the Ministry of Health, um, as well as the Ministry of Education, have released their guidelines and direction to schools to reduce um, to, do, to reduce the tra- possibility of transmission within the school setting. So things like enhanced cleaning, um, and then physical distancing measures, enhanced uh, hand hygiene. All these measures, measures will significantly reduce the, the risk to the to, to kids and to teachers, as well as to parents. Uh, the other thing, you know, we have to we have to, we have to, we have to be mindful of the un, unintended consequences, you know, by shutting down schools, um, a lot of kids, of course, have will, will get behind with their education. There's mental health impacts, including, including anxiety. So we have to manage those unintended consequences as well. So this is, a uh, uh, you know, this is probably in terms of looking at the bigger picture, managing the risks on both sides, reducing transmission, but also reducing the unintended
6: consequences of keeping kids out of school. Thanks, Hank. And um, it's it certainly, I know something that's a that's concern, and it's good to hear those reassuring words about uh, children not being the vectors that many are worried that they might be. This question is very specific. Um, a patient tests negative and their symptoms resolve on day five, is it safe for them to return to work once they're better, even if it hasn't been 10 days, given that there is a high false negative rate associated with the tests that are currently available? I can take that, boost if you like. Sure.
4: Yeah. Uh, so I know that a number has been quoted as having false, high, false, negative rate. And I, and I want to clarify what that, what that means. And I think one of that, there was a Chinese paper early in the pandemic that, that said that false negative rate might be as high as 30%. So when we talk about sensitivity of, of a test, there's two types of sensitivities. There's the, there's the biological sensitivity, sensitivity, and then there's the lab sensitivity. Biologic sensitivity, sensitivity basically means that was the was the virus there when you swabbed it or not, and the lab sensitivity means whether the lab will actually pick it up when the virus is actually there. The lab sensitivity is actually very high; it's, it's almost 100%. So if the virus is there and in enough copies, it will it will be positive or indeterminate. So as long as if there's a good tech, there was a, there was a good tech technique, um, and uh, the person has not actually gotten worse, but so they have actually improved and uh, the test the test was a negative that can be assumed that can be considered a true true negative, especially in a, in, a, in, a, in a current prevalence uh, you know as is right re- as is right now I think that the probability of having a false negative would be would be extremely low less than one per- way less than one percent so if somebody tests negative, you can assume that to be negative and there's certainly no restrictions or self-isolation
6: requirements for those individuals. Thank you. Very comprehensive there Um, and very definite. Um, The next question is relating to high-risk patients and return to work. Um, I I think, though, I'll flip the question and say, could you define what somebody with high risk, what are are the risk factors that uh, you would consider high?
5: uh, in, uh, people. I'll try that. Sure, Tom. First, I think there are inherent characteristics of the individual. So, an individual who has hearing challenges, visual challenges, uh, cognitive challenges, behavioral challenges, may not be able to protect her or himself from, uh, exposure to others in the way that, uh, someone Who for whom all of those functions are normal? So those are inherent issues in the person themselves. Uh, Second is whether or not that person uh, has risk factors. So those those are risk factors for acquisition of virus. Then there are uh, and there are behavioral factors too. Is that someone who tends to rub her or her or his nose, his face, uh, regularly, or is it someone? who's meticulous about hygiene, about hand-washing, and, and, and not bringing virus to a portal of entry. Uh, the second thing is, what's that person's inherent risk? What's their age? The older you are, the higher your risk. Uh, is the person diabetic? Is the, is the, as the person pre-existing heart disease? Uh, does, is the person uh, obese? All of those things would lead that individual Uh, once infected to have stronger consequences than they might otherwise have as as someone who doesn't have any of those things. So I I think there are inherent factors for getting infected, inherent factors for consequences given infection, Uh, and then the other thing is what's the nature of the work. If they're working at home uh, and they're not going out, no matter what their personal habits are, nor what their uh, individual risks are, uh, the likelihood of their being infected and of their having negative consequences are extremely low. If, on the other hand, they have to take a long commute to work on Vancouver's uh, SkyTrain and bus system, where which is already becoming quite crowded, uh, and they're working cheek by jowl with other people, and they're in a An environment where there's a lot of talking, uh, a lot of personal contact, uh, a lot of uh, contact through objects between people, then the risk is much higher. So all of those things would come into play. Brenda,
3: maybe a little unconventional for me to ask a question, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm wondering: do we need to distinguish much between the two risks that you've just talked about—the risk of getting Covid and then the risk of becoming really ill from Covid. Is there any need to distinguish that, or do we just consider all that risk as risk um, that we we review and and you know use as part of our assessment?
5: I, I think both of those things are important. That again, uh, someone who has meticulous hygiene, who is likely to wear uh, a mask, uh, someone who Uh, stays away from other people as much as possible. Uh, Someone like that is much less likely to acquire COVID than someone who does all of the opposite things. Uh, Someone who uh, is at high inherent risk of complications. That's the other side of the coin. And and I think they they both need to be considered.
6: Thank you. And... um I think we're learning more and more about uh, people who are at higher risk and um, I find it interesting that uh, it seems that some of the first um, information that's coming out of New York suggests that people with COPD may not be as high risk as we might have thought.
5: Oddly. Yeah,
6: oddly. one one thing that that um, tags on to some of these questions that actually was implied in the earlier question what about notes for off work Brenda, are you being asked for notes and and Holly and if so or if not um, what is the stance that you're taking on providing notes uh, for people?
3: yeah, I think it's shifted a little bit um, at my practice compared to you know maybe a month or two months ago when we were really not providing any notes to anyone and we were using a standard letter that was uh, written up um, I think it was DC family doctors who um, who wrote a pretty good letter essentially saying The officer of health has said we don't need to write these letters. Everyone has been advised, if you think you should be off work because of COVID, just don't go to work, and everyone should be staying home if at all possible. So we were really um, relying very heavily on that and providing that letter if people felt they really still were getting pressured to have some form of documentation to say they're doing the right thing. Um, It's a little bit different now that people are returning to work. And um, we are finding that, again, more similar to any times that um, people are feeling the need to be off work. If we really do feel that they're, they meet uh, criteria to be advised, to be given um, restrictions, then we would write restrictions like we normally would. But it's, um, again, I think I'll probably hand that over to Holly or someone else. It's a really tricky area because we aren't really... Um, other than in really clear-cut cases, you know, it's really hard for us to make a really good um, assessment around that. So we're leaning towards no letters, the form letter, um, and then if we're really pushed and someone really does require specific uh, restrictions, then we want them to be unique to that person and to be clearly thought through um, with either their specialist or perhaps someone else who's, who's got some advice. Um, that's sort of the approach we're taking right now.
6: Thanks, Brendan. The patient says that he or she cannot return to work due to stress and anxiety related to COVID-19. Are physicians allowed to write medical notes based on that reason? Uh, Well, (laughs) I'll jump
1: in. I mean, I, I think, first of all, it should be determined whether or not your patient actually has an anxiety disorder. Have they, have they truly developed an anxiety disorder as a result or partly res- result of COVID-19? And therefore, that's something that can be may, may need to be treated um, with all of the normal things that you would treat anxiety with. And I don't think it would be any different than it's a medical problem. If you think it is advisable that they not work as a result or that they're unable to, um, you know, people are unable to concentrate, unable to do various things, then, then perhaps you'd do a note as you would, I think, with any anyone else. I, I think stress because of worry about the pandemic without an actual disorder certainly warrants um, support and perhaps supportive counselling or those sorts of things, but um, I, I wouldn't say that it's something that I would write a note for, and I think I would be concerned in that if the patient continues not to go to work and it's not really a medical disorder, then you may, may be, but there may be a bit of an advocacy issue. You're advocating for what the patient wants and they're worried about work, so exploring again, as Brenda had said earlier, exploring what, why work is going to make that worse or how is work going to make that worse, um, and be careful that you don't just advocate for what the patient wants and then advocate them out of a job, because workplaces won't be required if, if they've got a safe workplace. Um, they will not be required to hold that job endlessly for people who choose to stay home. Um, and, of course, the risks of not working are high. And often, anxiety and stress and all those sorts of things go up, not down, the more you stay home.
6: It, it strikes me that um, this is an opportunity to have some more objective evidence um, that you have things like PHQ-9s and GAD-7 scores uh, where there's documentation of of the degree of anxiety or depression that could be leading to anxiety that might be of benefit there as well. A specific question about a type of patient, um, person in their 50s who is hypertensive and diabetic. How should I advise him about fourth return? Brendan, Holly, I think that might be over to you or Tom, did you have something to add in there?
1: Well, I'll start and just say, you know, I, I think there's so many, it depends with that one, right? He's 50, he's hypertensive, he's diabetic, I think he said, it It really depends so much again on what is his work, what are the accommodations that are in place there. Um, I think some of the evidence that I've seen says that, you know, poorly controlled diabetes is worse than a guy who's got a hemoglobin A1C of 7.5 and a blood pressure that's normalized with hydrochlorothiazide or something along those lines, you know. Um, Looking at the whole patient, looking at what his um, what his actual work is, what accommodations are there. Um, I, age alone, I think, is a higher risk factor from some of the numbers that I've seen than either the diabetes or the hypertension, but that's probably, again, going to be, it depends on how unwell he is with his diabetes. Um, and it's going to be the same. The community prevalence now, most of us, I think, would say his chance of being infected um at work is no different than it is probably with any other activity he's doing and all around it's probably very low but that's going to change and it'll need to be reassessed at that time
6: and, and certainly i notice that when i'm out uh, people are being much less cautious um and uh, the, the physical distancing and other things are not being as attended to as closely to so your point about there's no more risk being at home and doing those kind of activities than going to work is a good one in there. Tom, uh, you had uh, actually alluded to this, so here's a a question for you. High-risk patient but needs to take transit, SkyTrain and bus, um, for more than half an hour total to get to work. Is he safe to return to work in
5: the office? Well, again, I think, we've all said it, uh, now it's a question of community prevalence. With community prevalence being low, uh, with there being 10 or 11 cases per day for the last little while, one can infer that there's not much virus around. So uh, the likelihood of contacting virus uh, through transit again would be relatively low. Uh, I am concerned though about people who are very much at risk taking transit. They're people who would have problems uh, with hygiene, people who, uh, if they become infected, uh, would be very likely to become extremely ill. And I think personally that transit should have a system uh, for giving hand sanitizers and masks to people who board uh, buses in wheelchairs. Uh, And I think it should be incumbent on transit to do that, and they're not now. Uh, But for the person who has to take a long trip, I think they don't have that much to worry about now. But if we have a second wave, I think they might regret not being like so many people who are afraid to use transit now and are polluting the, the, the skies and taking up the roads using personal vehicles something we were trying so hard to get away from for so long.
6: Yeah. And, you know, now I've heard several of you mention um, that you take into consideration the community um, uh, incidents of of infection, you know, what's going on in your community right now. And certainly up to this point, um, we've not been reporting or hearing reports on community um, incidents of COVID-19. Uh, any comments from either of the two CDC uh, people on on that, the lack of us having that report?
5: Okay. Not, okay, I'll start. I think it is a conscious decision on the part of the province not to release that information initially. Uh, and just to give aggregate numbers, however, they have been giving numbers by health authority, which mm-hmm. allows a degree of localization such that one can say in northern BC, interior BC or on Vancouver Island that the likelihood of coming into contact with someone who uh, is actively infected is very low. Uh, even in uh, metropolitan Vancouver, the likelihood is is, is low. Uh, there have been increasingly information being put out about small area prevalence. Uh, And that is useful for anyone who wants to uh, better understand their individualized risk. If we went to the the point of saying that uh, uh, transmission has occurred only among family members in poultry plants uh, and in fruit and vegetable packers, People might think, well, there's no risk otherwise. Nobody in my family has got it, and I don't work in those places, so I have no risk. I'll go out dancing. I'll go out to nightclubs. I'll do whatever. So I I think that there there has been a conscious decision on behalf of the provincial health officer, primarily not to give all of that information to allow people to go so far in decision-making that they don't take account of uncertainty. I think that that's what what it boils down.
4: I think probably if I may just add one more piece to that. That is something that's being that that is being considered as releasing more granular data
5: yeah. at the local
4: health area level. Um, you know, the other reason why why we did why we had not released data at the granular level earlier on was that testing was was quite limited. Yes, um, so the number of cases that we were seeing were were, were likely a very gross estimate, underestimate of, of the true prevalence of disease out there. Now that we have opened up testing to pretty much anybody and there's very low threshold testing now, we probably have a much clearer understanding of what, what all the number of cases that are truly out there, we're probably picking up most, if not all of them. So it's a true reflection of the prevalence now than it was uh, a month or two ago. Yes, thank
6: you. Shelly, I think this might be a question for you, um, given your internal medicine background. Are patients with rheumatoid arthritis on DMARD considered high risk?
2: Um, so I don't have a perfect answer for this. I think the evidence is limited regarding degree of risk. Um, I know that they would be at increased risk uh, and severity of bacterial and opportunistic infections, but Uh, COVID-19 is less clear. However, you know, chronic diseases um, on, you know, immunosuppressive agents is a concern. And uh, so I think they're not without risk. I also want to go back to that 50-year-old with hypertension and diabetes because I'm concerned what other comorbid diseases does he have? Does he also have cardiac disease? Um, Is he obese? I'm just starting to think of increased risk. So if we're right now, I'm not as concerned, but if we're in a surge situation, I'm concerned. So that's how I would look at it. I mean, it's an individualized assessment, you know, and I agree with what Tom has to say. If they're, you know, if they have meticulous hand hygiene, they work in a work environment that's uh, got great physical distancing. Um, these are all good points, right?
6: Thanks, Shelley. Brenda, I think this is one for you, and based on your experience, what questions are you asking your patients about fitness to return to work, to help you determine fitness for returning to work?
3: So I think. Uh I'm not sure i got much to add to what we've said before, but I, I do think definitely under trying to understand a little bit about their work. I can never be an expert in their work, but I do need to have an understanding of the kind of work that they're doing, what the environment is like for that particular work and what their assessment is of um, that situation and trying to get a little bit objective. So um, sometimes people are kind of vague in their descriptions of their work and their workplace. So I do sometimes have to ask some um, kind of pointed questions to try to get a better understanding of their workplace and their, and their job. Um, and then I think trying to hear from them their perspective, I usually try to start there. You know, do they feel they're fit to return? And doesn't mean that's my assessment, but I do want to know where they're starting from and to understand why they feel that way. I think Holly brought up a great point, which is about that work attachment is this someone who's not been happy in their work for a very long time? Um, or is this someone who truly loves their work and can't wait to get back? And that I don't, it's uh, a tricky thing to navigate, but I think it's actually really important and it's an important conversation. I'm always surprised actually when I have that conversation, especially people who are not very well attached to their work, where that conversation will go. And sometimes people develop or will have conversations um, less about physical fitness or mental fitness and a little bit more about their their life and their family and their plans and um, their hopes and aspirations which of course is not medical I'm happy to facilitate the conversation but it does sometimes shift people into a different way of thinking about their uh, return to work.
6: Thanks Brenda and I I just wanted to take a bit of a pause here just to acknowledge that uh, we are at eight o'clock um, we do have still thirty one questions on the queue. Uh, I know Holly will get there. And um, so um, I do want to acknowledge that anyone that does have to go uh, appreciate your your time and your attendance, and remember, please to um, uh, take a couple minutes to fill in the questionnaire poll. Um we will, however, continue on uh, with uh, questions for another. Thirty minutes. Um, thank you to the panel for doing that. Um, Shelley, I, I think this is a, an extension of your question that I asked you before: Is being on chemotherapy a risk factor? Um, but the second part is interesting. There, what about their family members of someone who's on chemotherapy? So, I, I think the chemotherapy is
2: considered a risk factor. Um, And, you know, you have to think about usual infectious precautions at home with the family members before COVID-19 with being on chemotherapy. And so those measures have to be in place. So the home environment should be safe. But I guess you have to think about all those people that are working, uh, that are at home living with this person Need to take that extra step so that they don't bring home COVID-19 as well or any other infections. Um, so yeah. Thank you. Uh,
6: these are tough questions um, because they, they have so many um, factors that could define what the answer might be for any one patient. So thank you for answering them as best you can. Um, Mayank, I think this might be a question for you. Um, What about well-controlled asthmatics return to work? Um, What is what do we know from the uh, studies about uh, people with asthma? They're on medications that have no symptoms uh, or either other factors. Uh, To be honest, I haven't had a chance
4: to look at the literature specifically for asthma. Um, However, um, generally speaking, those with pre-existing disease uh, have been considered to be a higher risk. Uh, however, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm blanking out on a specific risk for asthma. I'm not sure if any of the other panelists have that information
2: on hand. So so I think the risk is higher with moderate to severe disease that's uncontrolled, yeah. but the risk with a, you know, someone that's uh, well controlled is less, um, less dramatic. And so. Yeah. I'm not as worried if they're well controlled. Tom, do you have any thoughts?
5: No, that's that's correct. Uh, a mild, a mild or and or well controlled asthmatic really is not at higher risk of consequence than someone who is not asthmatic at all. Uh, it seems paradoxical. You'd think they would be, but they're not. Thank
6: you. An interesting question that um, uh, is very specific again for teachers. This is a a healthy, anxious elementary educator who is requesting accommodation, uh, a note for accommodation requiring students to physically distance and wear masks. How should I respond?
5: Poor kids.
6: (laughs) It's a tough one and um, I, I imagine you know, this uh, speaks a lot to Brenda, what you were saying before, and Holly about digging deeper.
3: Well, is that truly an accommodation too, I guess is the question. Um, and is that an accommodation for anxiety is another question. Um, I, I, I don't think the answer to either of those questions is yes. I mean, everyone is physical distancing. Um, my personal thing about math is um, like for our clinic let's say we request patients to when they come in for an in-person visit we do request that they bring their own non-medical mask um, certainly if they are symptomatic we provide them with a uh, medical mask um, if someone arrives without a mask we are not refusing them we are not giving them a hard time um, but we are definitely going to work extra hard to maintain distance and mostly really limit the amount of time that we spend in any kind of, um, enclosed space with them, you know, AKA our exam room. Um, and we're just super cautious to try to keep that short to only what needs to be done and then, you know, have them go and we maybe finish the rest of the conversation by phone. So my thoughts are, um uh, I don't, everyone's all over the map when you start talking about masks. Um, and the data and the science behind it. Um, But I'm thinking in in a school situation, um, again, partly depending on the age of the kids. but I just have no idea how you're going to enforce something like that, first of all. And I don't know whether or not it's even reasonable other ways of trying to create space, keep distance. Um, You know, there are a lot of other techniques I think they'd be able to put into place to try to keep the distancing, remembering it's, a droplet. Um, and so there are things you can do to mitigate risk besides
6: masks. And I think to Tom's comment, the really difficult challenge is, especially with younger kids, uh, keeping having them be able to remember to stay physically distant and wearing a mask appropriately, not pulling it down, having it fall off, touch it, do all the things with it that would negate the value of the mask in there. So quite a challenge in there. Um, Again, a very specific uh, work uh, situation. A patient doesn't want to work in a kitchen of a fast food restaurant. There's five to six workers in the kitchen. It's poorly ventilated, um, most of whom are young people who won't or don't wear a mask. Tom, um, I can't, your, your face said it all, your comment to that.
5: What would no. you? What would it, you does, do? it doesn't sound like a uh, a helpful environment for anyone there, neither for the younger people who presumably have grandparents, parents whom they might infect if infected, uh, nor for the uh, uh, older person who doesn't want to work there because of, concerns of, of closeness uh, and of the possibility of transmission. The other thing in, the, in a fast food restaurant is people tend to be loud and, and they, they're they speaking and productive of respiratory secretions. Now, if there is nothing going on in the community, uh, if this is a place where there is no COVID and COVID is unlikely to be introduced, then the person has nothing to worry about. If, on the other hand, they're in a community during a surge, during a wave, where there is a fair bit of COVID around, they are at risk. Uh, And um, it's a difficult situation because it's not a well-paying job. Uh, They likely don't have many alternatives. Uh, And even though they may try to protect themselves, uh, uh, themselves, Uh, With rigorous hygiene, uh, with masking, or a face shield, all of which are probably the right thing to do in that circumstance, they still are at higher than baseline risk.
6: There's been a lot of comments uh, about risk, and um, a great comment here is, unfortunately, I find terms low risk and high risk not helpful without reference. To some other known risk. We and our patients need a reference point. Any comment to that,
5: that comment? It, it's difficult to quantify. Uh, it depends on, an, on a number of factors, and, and we've said them. One of them is current community prevalence. Uh, and in fact, that's not macro, that's micro, uh, as Mike was saying. Uh, It's it's local scale that's important and we don't always have that information. Uh, Likewise, it really depends on how somebody conducts themselves in that environment. We can't know entirely. We can know something about the environment, something about their job, but two people with the same job uh, can have very different uh, levels of exposure depending on personal factors. So a, risk, a precise risk calculation is difficult to give. One can be relative uh, in saying that again: if you're at home, your risk is very low. If, on the other hand, you're uh, in a crowded elevator with five other people who are coughing and sneezing, your risk in the middle of summer, your risk is appreciable. So, I, I it, it may not be satisfying, but I, I don't really think we can do much better other than the various scales by occupation, uh, by activity, and by individual inherent risk that we've spoken about so far.
3: Thank you. Just further to that case, though, that prompted this conversation, the kitchen, um, you know, with a lot of people in it, um, regardless of community risk, low being low or higher, even that person's individual risk, This doesn't sound like a workplace that's really complying with the current recommendations. So I would think that worker might want to be encouraged to speak to their manager or look at the work safe plan for their work. Or if they were feeling that that was not a good place to go, maybe even talking to someone at Worksafe to advise them on what would be um, safe next steps. Recognizing, as you said, Tom, that they might be in. um, a very vulnerable place and not want to do that or not feel um, empowered to do that. But I would still think if they did, those would be really reasonable steps regardless of uh, community transmission and regardless of their personal risk factors.
5: Very good point.
6: Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, being clear on how you advise people to connect with WorkSafe BC in those kinds of situations it would be very valuable. And there is that phone number that Holly had uh, shown before that it's worth Yes, Holly.
1: Yeah. Well, and I was just going to say, I, I think it, a lot of it still comes back to what's the physician role and what's the work, workplace's role. And some of these, patients, some of these um, concerns that are coming up are really very specific to that workplace. And they do sound worrisome. But again, they need to go through the process, report to WorkSafe, and, and remembering as well that a physician's role is not to prescribe to the workplace what their accommodations need to be, um, that's for work, the workplace and the employer, uh, at least, and um, WorkSafeBC to do. So when we go back to even that teacher case, I think, again, you're looking at, you want the doctor to write a note as to what the workplace is going to have to tell the people there to do. And that, 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 that's not our medical job. We If that patient is at a higher risk for contracting COVID-19, and again, a higher risk is something... We, we can't ever give people exact numbers. It's so hard because we have, we have high and low and very little, very few exact numbers. But we don't know exact numbers of what your risk is when when you walk out the door for all kinds of things every day that our patients do. But anyway, I, I think we need to, you know, physicians stick to what just your role is. Is this patient at higher risk than everybody else or than the average person because of their age, which is the biggest factor, and or underlying medical conditions? Um, and if so, let the workplace know that and see if they can sort something out for accommodations for that patient. You don't need to make that call.
6: I think it's a good point to say that, um, and man, uh, you probably as an epidemiologist can speak to this, but you know when you speak of somebody's general risk, you know 50 years, if you're over 50, you have a higher risk of getting a heart attack. Uh, it's a very different thing than speaking about a 54-year-old man who comes and saying, what's my risk? Yeah. And um, I think that's where we run into those kinds of challenges in there. Can we, anybody give, uh, or maybe all of you, some quick tips? What would you say, what can a, a physician uh, say or, or uh, to an anxious patient uh, to make them feel comfortable about when returning to work and just some pearls uh, that y- that you might use as a a, a line and uh, that might help support the patient brenda uh one
3: of one of the things that i do talk about with patients is the risk of not working i do think that's an under recognized mm-hmm. risk that people don't pay attention to or aren't familiar with the literature and i recognize again it's very individual but some Um, Some people experience this even if they take some time off work and then they find whatever was bothering them actually is no better or they weren't actually able to address it just by being away from work. Um, I know there are situations where that's not the case, but many times being off work is not the solution to the problem and in fact can create more problems. So having a really clear conversation about that risk and then um, discussing uh, a plan, including that as a piece
2: of the of the overall plan.
6: That's an excellent tip in there. Thank you, Shelley. Yes,
2: yeah. um, I always I, so I think now is a, a great opportune time to go back to work because the community spread is low, yeah. and employers have um, the screening in place, and it's an opportunity to actually go back and see if they're following an appropriate safety plan. And, you know, we're not in a surge right now. This is a great time for them to go and see and check it out. And so I think it's a good time to do this now. Good. Thank
6: you. That's a really good point in there, um, especially here in BC. Um, I'm not sure that any of you can answer this question, but it, it might be be something that if someone was listening on a previous webinar, um, I could not hear an answer to the excellent question previously posed. If we refuse to give a note for work exclusion and the patient gets COVID, are there legal risks to the MD who did not give a note? I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, Brenda, do you know?
3: I, no, we don't have any lawyers here either. No. I'm gonna I say no. You're not.
6: <laughs> um, I, CMPA was on earlier, and I believe Holly. Do you remember their answer? No, but I was going to say.
1: I mean, I think that's entirely a question for CMPA, really. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, the question would also be of determining. You'd have to be certain of, obviously, of where they caught it as well. Yes.
6: Yeah. So we'll, we'll. Unfortunately, I'm sorry. We'll have to pass on that and refer. Uh, the questioner to CMPA to get that answer. Uh, Dr. Workman, specifically to you, Holly, if I understand correctly, if a patient does not feel comfortable returning to work, am I right to continue to support their stress leave? Uh,
1: Not comfortable to return to work. I think that may be a decision that you're making. I'm not sure if that's the way I'd approach it. Um, I guess the question is, are they not comfortable because they feel there's an increased risk at the workplace, and has the workplace been deemed something that's safe or not safe? Um, Stress leaves, again, I think often being away from work is more stressful and doesn't actually make things better whereas often a slow return and encouraging communication with the workplace and looking at the accommodations or what would need to happen for them to be able to do that. I'm not sure I think it's any different than stress leave for anything else, and I think many of us have very different approaches to patients taking stress leave from work. Um, I guess it depends on what they're doing and whether or not they have a diagnosable condition and whether or not they actually require treatment. And if they don't, if they don't have a diagnosable condition, condition, if they're not getting treatment for anything, I guess I'd wonder what kind of benefit they're having by being off work and if it's truly making their stress any better. But
6: uh, I, I, I'm going to guess Brenda's going to have an approach to that. I, I'm going to combine the next two questions a little bit, um, what, and the comment is, what would be very helpful would be a risk calculator based on patient age, weight? health, workplace factors, and community prevalence. Um, yeah. Does anyone know if one exists yet? <laughs> because the question that was prior to that was, are there any guidelines that actually define uh, high risk that objectively give a value to that? Um, and I'm guessing, based on all the answers you've heard, that there is no risk calculator for this
5: yet. Tom? I'm unaware of any. Risk calculated there. There are risk scales for behaviors, for workplaces, for uh, medical conditions, etc. But there is nothing that I know that puts them all together. Thank you.
6: And and it might be worthwhile, uh, that might be helpful to people if um, we talk to you, Tom, later and and get those uh, risk scales for the individual things and provide them as resources to our audience and um, make them available on the uvc uh, CTD resource hub for COVID-19, where you can get
5: access to that material. Can do, I'll have to do a little bit of looking, but I've seen them. Perfect, thank you. Um,
6: This is, again, Holly, I I think this is sort of gonna put people on the spot, much like your last question. Um, What if we agree to meet the patient halfway? And the patient agrees, for example, go back to work and can work from home, but not 100% at home. But then the workplace says, nope, you're either 100% here at work or not at all.
1: Well, I think that still just comes back to the same question of do they have a do they have a diagnosable condition? And is there a benefit to being off work? And do you think it's medically indicated that your patient should not work? Um, it is possible that they will choose not to return to work and they could lose their job as a result of that. Um, I I don't think we can make there be medical disorders where there aren't any. And I think it's challenging sometimes to um, encourage a patient to do something that they may not be keen to do. And it, it makes me wonder if there's underlying anxiety disorders or those sorts of things that may need treatment if it's that sort of entrenched. And exploring, as you would with anyone what's at the bottom of it all, especially given in the present environment, you know I think with with community prevalence where it is, and the numbers where they are, it would be very difficult i think to to find many normal workplaces um, that are going to pose a significantly higher risk
6: than probably what that person's already doing i'm going to just uh, try to go to some short snappers, so um, we've got about uh, uh, a couple minutes left and we'll see if we can get through some questions with very tight, short answers, if possible. Uh, is there a number that you can give of active community cases per population that you would consider to be a higher risk situation? I can
4: take a stab at that. Bruce, if you want
6: Sure. Were. Thanks, mate. Yeah.
4: So um, it's, it's a great question. Um, so there isn't one one cutoff. Uh, you know, most things in life are rarely ever black and white. It's a, it's a it's a continuum. But most importantly, we would never consider just one factor. We also want to think about how many how many people did not have uh, did not have any known contacts. Uh, that is an indication of of undetected community circulation. Currently, that is, a, that is a very small proportion of cases that we're seeing. Most cases that we that we get to know of now have either had international or at least out of province travel, or they have been in contact with with another known case. Those are not the ones that we worry about because we can see where the where those transmissions are happening. It's the ones where there is there is significant significant community transmission happening, where we don't have a known contact. Those are much more concerning, and that number is is uh, is not even a handful of this, basically about a handful at this time. So that's, that's the number that we really look at. There's a whole bunch of other indicators that we follow as well, but it's not a single indicator that we would define as a high-risk situation.
6: Okay. Um, and um, Holly, uh, there's a, a question about the WorkSafe BC number that, to call for advice, and we'll provide that on the Resource Hub, to have that number. Um, And um, should we encourage healthcare workers to continue to change their scrubs, clothing when leaving the workplace, not only during COVID? Short answer?
3: I'm going to say yes. Um, And I'm going to say that in Ontario, I lived through SARS, and we started to shift our practice around that, leaving our shoes at work, taking off our clothes when we got home. Uh, recognizing in the infectious kind of environment, it's probably not an unreasonable thing to do. It's kind of an old-fashionedy thing to do. Um, uh, I, in terms of scrubs, whatever. I don't know that that's the case, but clothing, like whatever clothing you're wearing in that environment, probably doesn't make uh, probably not unreasonable. And that's been my practice since 2003. So that's why I'm saying yes to that one.
6: Okay. Thank you. Well. I'm sure you'd love to continue hearing more from this uh, great panel, but we've, uh, we're getting very close to the end and we have to stop. I, I would really like to express my sincere gratitude to the panel, Drs. Holly Workman, uh, Brenda Hardy, uh, Shelley Perlman, Tom Kosatsky, and Mayank Singal. They're all very dedicated healthcare professionals and edu- excellent educators. For taking time from their very busy lives and heavy responsibilities to answer your questions tonight, and I'm sure the audience, as I do, really appreciate it. I also want to acknowledge our hardworking UBC's TV staff of Stephanie Amalia, Judy Chen, Desiree Torrio, Kathy Gao, Stephanie Din, Kate Mathen, Yan Chow, Vivian Lam, Nana Zoric, Lindsay Callan, Michelle Basin, Sandy McNeil. Uh, who is our uh, main help tonight, and Jenny Barrows. And without them, the delivery of these webinars, the support for me wouldn't be possible. I really wanted to thank all of you for attending and hope this session was of value. Uh, Remember, please take a few moments right now to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that were emailed to you. And, And this is to make sure that you can get your study credits and also to provide your feedback for tonight's webinar. And please note that this webinar is accredited for up to one hour of Maine Pro Plus Section 1 credits. And I also thought you might want to know and register for our other upcoming webinar being presented on our COVID-19 webinar series. This is Practical Tips and Expert Q&A with Emergency Hospital-Based and Primary Care uh, Health Clinicians. And this is the fifth webinar in that series with highly experienced emergency and critical care staff general hospital care, primary care, and public health clinicians. And they'll provide evidence-based information, and this is changing all the time, they share their experiences and best practices managing COVID-19 patients through answering your questions. So please register today. And finally, please be aware that in the follow-up email, you will receive tonight's webinar recording and links to the resources mentioned. Um, Several so great questions in there that would uh, that these links refer to, and there will be a link to our very robust and highly valued COVID-19 resource hub. Um, I was told to say that, as well as to a newer resource called uh, RECT, R-E-A-K-T, which is available to answer any of your COVID-19 questions. As well, a link to our COVID-19 podcasts and other webinar recordings and summaries will be included. Thank you very much, everybody. Take care and be safe. Good night.
0: Good night. night.
6: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: If you're interested in more COVID-19 related content, another great show you might enjoy is hosted by Drs. Sarah Fletcher and Morgan Price. Their podcast is Primary Care in a Pandemic, and it looks at changes to primary care in B.C. and how health care providers are adapting to the crisis. Metamorphosis is a podcast by medical students, for medical students, to help navigate their professional careers. The first few episodes of the season are part of their COVID-19 series, with an added focus on health care workers and how they've been involved with and affected by the global pandemic. On behalf of the UBC Medicine team, I hope you are staying healthy, happy, and safe in this crisis, and we want to extend our sincerest thanks to those who are working tirelessly to keep everyone safe. Thank you.